Good evening. Good to be together this evening. Appreciate the time we've been able to spend in worship, not only this morning, but also tonight, and to continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn with me, if you have your copy of God's Word. We're going to be in Mark, the 8th chapter, and in just a minute, we're going to begin in verse number 22. If you have your Bible and you'd like to follow along, Mark chapter 8, and in just a few minutes, we'll begin with verse number 22, and Lord willing, work our way down to verse number 33. If you had the chance to be with us last week, then perhaps you remember we began a mini-series just last week and this week on having a hard heart. Last week, we spent some time in Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 21, looking at three symptoms that lead to diagnosing ourselves with a hard heart. We asked the question, is your heart hard? Is my heart hard? Hard. It's a question that takes some serious thinking. It's a question that takes some serious reflection because sometimes diagnosing and seeing a hard heart within ourselves is very hard to do. This is something that's easier to see in other people than it is to see in yourself. As we looked at Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 21, talking about those three symptoms, we said if we're insincerely searching for proof, if we're not understanding Jesus' teachings, if we're not remembering the significance of what Jesus has done for us in the past, His past actions, then it might be the case, it might very well be the case, that our hearts have become hard. Instead of allowing Jesus, instead of allowing His Word to sink into our hearts, instead of our hearts being soft, if we align ourselves with those three symptoms, it might be the case that our hearts have become like a stone and nothing spiritual is able to enter in to them. Tonight, I want us to take the next step in this study. I want us to think about the question, how can a hard heart be fixed? How can a hard heart be mended? How can a hard heart be softened? If I read through Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 22, and I find that my heart is hard, if I have diagnosed myself with a hard heart, if I think that I might be there, what can I do to get out of that? How can a hard heart be fixed? It's kind of like the barber, uh, the local barber in a small town. He was the only barber shop in this small town. He had a monopoly on the business. Everyone went to get his haircut at, at this particular barber shop. A few years later, a chain barbershop moved into the town. Put a big sign in front of the chain barbershop saying $3 haircuts. Imagine what that did, can't you? It took away all of his business. His business, within just a few weeks, was drowning. He didn't have any appointments whatsoever. And so he called in a consultant. He could see that, that he was in trouble. He called in a consultant. The consultant spent the entire day reading through his books, asking him all kinds of questions. At the end of the day, he asked the consultant, do you think that we're going to be able to make it? Do you think that I should close up shop now? He said, not yet. Wait till tomorrow. I have an idea. He came back the next day with a huge banner to put up in front of the local barber shop that said, we fix $3 haircuts. If you're going to have $3 haircuts in town, then you're going to have somebody who needs to fix them. So just like this barber fixed $3 haircuts, let's think tonight about how we can fix 
a hard heart. Number one, if we're going to fix a hard heart, according to verses 22 through 26, we need to spend some time pleading for Jesus to open up our eyes, to give sight to our spiritual blindness. But as we turn to the text in Mark chapter 8, last week as we closed out our study, Jesus and his disciples were in the process of crossing the Sea of Galilee from the western side to the eastern side. Verse 22 of Mark chapter 8 says that they entered into the city of Bethsaida. Bethsaida was in the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. It was the, the city where the Jordan River flowed into the Sea of Galilee. As Jesus entered into the city of Bethsaida with his disciples, you notice what happened, that there were some people, a group of people, who brought to him a blind man. This story actually fits well in this text. Last week, we talked about not only the Pharisees, but Jesus' disciples' spiritual blindness. Remember, Jesus spoke to his disciples. He asked them the question, having eyes to see, do you not see? They were spiritually blind. Now we're reading about a story of a man who was physically blind. These people bring this blind man to Jesus and they begged him to touch him. The only reason that they would have done that is if they believed Jesus had the power to heal him. The only reason that they would have came to Jesus, the only reason that they would have asked Jesus to lay his hands on this particular individual is if they trusted the fact, if they knew the fact that Jesus had the power to heal him. This wasn't a give or take situation. This wasn't, well, Jesus, if you can fit this into your busy schedule, we'd really like for you to do this, but you really don't have to do it today. No, you have this group of people bringing this blind man to Jesus. He couldn't come by himself, and they are begging Jesus. They are on their hands and knees pleading him, please lay your hands on this man. We've heard about you. We've heard if you, are, if you even just touch people, they can be healed of whatever ailment they have. Would you please do it for our friend here? How did Jesus respond to that? It's interesting that he doesn't immediately heal the man. Do you notice that as we read through the text? Instead, it's more of a process. When you look at verse 23, he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village to avoid publicity of what he's about to do. Back in this time, they thought that spit had miraculous healing capabilities, medicinal properties to it. I don't think Jesus believed that. The reason I think that Jesus spits on this man's eyes is for the man's encouragement. It's showing the man, I'm about to heal you. This is what I'm about to do for you. I think that's symbolic whenever you look at verse number 23. As was requested in verse 22, you find in 23 that Jesus laid his hands on this man. He touched him and he asked him, do you see anything? The man's response is a response that we really don't see in any other account throughout Mark's gospel he basically said, kind of. He said, I, I see objects, but they're really not in focus. He said, I, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. In other words, he could see objects, but they were blurry. He couldn't make out what they were. So once again, Jesus laid his hands on him. And it was in that moment that the miraculous happened completely. The Bible says that when Jesus laid his hands on him, again in verse 25, he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. As they come to Jesus, and they're pleading for Jesus to open this man's eyes, to give sight to his blind eyes, 
Jesus does that, but he doesn't do it immediately. It's more of a process, more than likely to increase this man's faith in Jesus and in what Jesus is capable of. If we want to fix our hard hearts, maybe this is where we need to start. We need to spend some time talking to Jesus. We need to spend some time pleading for Jesus to open up our eyes, to give sight to our blindness. A father was giving his little boy a bath one evening. And as kids oftentimes do, he was splashing around in the water. He just so happened to splash some water up on his face. The soap and the water got in his eyes, so he closed his eyes really tight. As soon as he closed his eyes, he started to panic. Dad, who turned the lights off? Turn the lights back on. Why, why, why did you turn the lights off? And the dad thought that it was a little bit funny, you know, that he didn't actually turn the lights off. He told him, just, just open up your eyes. You have your eyes closed. If you would open up your eyes, you would be able to see everything. I think that that illustration does a good job of, of talking about where we are Whenever our hearts are hard. Whenever our hearts are hard, we're not going to be able to see anything. We're not going to be able to receive. We're not going to be able to perceive. We're not going to be able to understand. We're going to be blind. And we think the problem is that all of the lights are off. We think the problem is that we find ourselves in complete darkness. But that's not really the problem, is it? Whenever our hearts are hard, it's not that the lights are off. It's that our eyes are closed. When we find ourselves in those kind of positions, we have to recognize what this group recognized. Jesus is the only one who can open up our eyes. Jesus is the only one who can soften a hard heart. Just like this man wasn't capable of opening up his own eyes, we aren't either from a spiritual perspective. So what do we need to do? We need to approach Jesus in humility. We need to spend time talking with Him, pleading with Him to open up our eyes because He's the only one that we can do it. it. It's not a give or take kind of thing. Like we said as we were walking through the text, this is something that needs to have some urgency in it. If I recognize that my heart is hard, I'm not going to put off talking to Jesus about it until next week. I'm going to take care of that immediately. Now, it might not happen immediately. Just like in this text, our eyes being opened might be a process that Jesus has designed to increase our faith. But I think that this is where we need to start. If we're going to fix our hard hearts, we need to spend time talking to Jesus. Pleading for Him to do what only He can do to provide sight to spiritually blind eyes. Number two, if we're going to fix a hard heart, verses 27 through 30, we have to recognize who Jesus is. We need to have not only a knowledge of His identity, but we need to express that in how we live on a daily basis. In verse 27, Jesus took His disciples into the village that were outside of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a pagan city. It was a city that was once home to a, a temple to the Greek god named Pan. It was a place where a lot of people would go to worship all kinds of different idols, to worship all kinds of different false gods. As Jesus and his disciples enter into the villages of Caesarea Philippi, as they were on the way, Jesus asked them a very important question. What are people saying about me? What's the word on the street about my identity? What are people saying about who I am? The disciples would have been in a perfect situation to answer that question. 
Because in scriptures like Mark chapter 6 and verse number 7, Jesus sends out the twelve. In this case, he sends them two by two to go into all of these different villages and to go into all of these different cities to preach the gospel and to heal those who were there. They would have been in the perfect position to answer this question because they spent a lot of time with the public in all kinds of different villages. So Jesus asked them, what are people saying about me? And they give a very divided answer. Don't they? They answered, this is verse number 28, and told him, some say John the Baptist. Remember, at this point, John the Baptist was dead. He had been beheaded by Herod Antipas. Whenever people saw Jesus, they thought that he was John the Baptist reincarnated. He thought that he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's what Herod thought when he heard about Jesus. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 16, when Herod heard of Jesus, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. That was a popular thought among the common people. And then some went on to say, when you look at Mark chapter 8, that Jesus was Elijah. We know from the book of 2 Kings, really early on in that book, Elijah is one of the two individuals in Scripture who never died. He was taken from earth directly into heaven. And then you add on top of that, Malachi chapter 4 and verse number 5, God promises, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, we know from New Testament revelation that the promise of Malachi 4 and verse 5 was fulfilled in John the Baptist. He came in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. But when people saw Jesus, they thought that Jesus was Elijah, that God had fulfilled this promise and Elijah had returned. And then others thought that he was one of the other prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, you name one. He's one of the other prophets reincarnated, one of the other prophets raised from the dead. A very divided answer about Jesus's identity. But then as you continue, I think the rubber meets the road in verse number 29. What people are saying about Jesus is an important question. But perhaps an even more important question, as Jesus looks at his disciples, he asks them, who do you say that I am? What do you have to say about my identity? Well, that gets pretty personal, doesn't it? Simon Peter, oftentimes, when he answered, he was oftentimes the spokesman for the group. Oftentimes, when Simon Peter answered, he would open his mouth and automatically insert his foot. And I imagine he knew exactly what his sandal tasted like. But here, he gives the right answer, doesn't he? When you look at Mark chapter 8 and verse number 29, Peter answered him, You are the Christ. Who do you say that I am? Peter, speaking on behalf of the group, says you're the Messiah. You're the one who we've been waiting for. You've been the, you are the one who was predicted and prophesied about in the Old Testament Scriptures. You are the anointed one of God, which in the Old Testament, there's three groups that were anointed. Prophets, priests, and kings. Peter looks at Jesus and says, you're our prophet. You're our priest. You are our king. Now, I don't think that the apostles fully understand what it means for Jesus to be the Christ yet. We're going to see that as we continue in this section of Scripture in Mark chapter 8. But isn't that a great place to start? They are recognizing who Jesus was. And as they are recognizing Jesus' identity, their hard hearts, their spiritual blindness starts to fade away. Number two, if we want to fix a hard heart, 
then we have to recognize who Jesus is and live our lives based on that recognition. Christian Herder was at one time the governor of Massachusetts. Maybe you've heard this story about him before. He was running for re-election, running for his second term as governor. He had had a busy day going to all kinds of different meetings. In the mid-afternoon, he showed up at a church barbecue. The church barbecue was set up for him. He was the main speaker. And so he was going through the line, getting some food, had his plate. He walked up to the lady that was handing out chicken. The lady put one piece of chicken on his plate, on to the next one. But Governor Herder stepped back for just a second and said, Hey, do you think I could get another piece of chicken? She said, I'm sorry, no. The, the rules are just one piece of chicken per person. But the governor pushed back on her just a little bit. But I'm really hungry. I've had a really long day. I haven't eaten today. Could I please just have another piece of chicken? She said, no, rules are rules. You can only have one piece of chicken. At this point, I think he got a little bit hangry which you know is a mixture between being hungry and being angry. He really pushed back on her. Do you know who I am? She said, no. He said, I'm the governor of this state. I, I'm the reason that you're here. I'm the reason that this barbecue is happening. Would you please give me another piece of chicken? The lady handing out the chicken looked at him and said, well, do you know who I am? He said, no. She said, I'm the lady handing out the chicken. And the rule is, you only get one piece. We look out in our world, there's a lot of different opinions about Jesus, isn't there? There's a lot of different opinions about who Jesus is. There's a lot of different thoughts on Jesus' identity. Regardless of what everyone else says about Jesus, He wants to know, who do you say that I am? He wants to ask you the question that the governor asked the chicken lady and the question that the chicken lady asked the governor. Do you know who I am? Do you understand who I am? Who is Jesus? How would you answer that question? Can you stand alongside the Apostle Peter to say you are the Christ? You're the Messiah? You are the anointed one of God. You're my prophet. The one who reveals God to me. You're my priest. The one who connects me to God. You are my king, the one who rules over my life every single day of my life. Are you willing to stand alongside of Peter and make that confession, you are the Christ? But even more than that, are you willing to act on it? Are you willing to live your life on a daily basis based on the recognition that Jesus is the Christ? Matthew's account says the son of the living God. As we recognize who Jesus is, as we form deeper, more personal, intimate relationships with Him, as we fall deeper and deeper in love with Jesus, it's amazing how the hard heart starts to become soft. And then, number three, if you're going to fix a hard heart, then according to verses 31 through 33, we have to set our minds on the things of God. When you look at Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, we encounter a turning point in the gospel of Mark. This is a really significant place in the gospel. We experience a transition from Jesus' Galilean ministry to Him gradually revealing to His disciples what's going to happen to Him in the city of Jerusalem. He's transitioning from His Galilean ministry to the Passion Week in Jerusalem. And here's where it all begins in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, he began to teach them. 
that the Son of Man must, it's not an option, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. That's something that Jesus taught them plainly. Think about Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospel of Mark so far. It's been veiled. In many ways, it's been a mystery. Jesus has been speaking in parables. Not anymore. He wants His disciples to know. He speaks to them plainly. This is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. And on the third day, I'm going to rise. That didn't make sense. In the Apostle Peter's mind. You notice in, in verse number 32, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Matthew gives us a little bit more detail in chapter 6 and verse 4 about what Peter said to him. He said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Especially in the context of what Peter just confessed about Jesus, these statements from Jesus didn't make sense. The Christ wasn't supposed to suffer. The Christ was supposed to cause suffering when He attacks the Romans and establishes the earthly kingdom in the city of Jerusalem. The Christ wasn't supposed to be rejected by the Jewish religious leaders. He's supposed to lead the Jewish religious leaders. The Christ wasn't supposed to be killed. He was supposed to be the one who led an army of Jews who were going to do the killing. They're going to kill the Romans and overthrow them. It doesn't add up in Peter's mind. And so Peter pulls Jesus aside privately and said, that's never going to happen to you. You think you're going to suffer. You think you're going to be rejected and be killed, but I'm not going to let that happen. How did Jesus respond? Well, you continue reading there. Peter pulled Jesus aside privately and began to rebuke him. Jesus rebuked him publicly in front of all of the other apostles in, in verse Number 33, turning aside and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Those are strong words. Why would, why would Jesus say that to Peter, especially after the confession that he made just a few verses ago? Get behind me, Satan. And here's the reason. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but you are setting your mind on the things of man. He says, Peter, you're not thinking about spiritual things. You're thinking about physical things. You're aligning yourself with Satan. You're aligning yourself with the agenda of Satan in trying to stop me from, coming, from doing what I came to earth to do. Ultimately, to hang on the cross, to die, to be buried, and as he said, raise on the third day. He says, Peter, it's not your place to stand in front of me rebuking me. It's not your place to point your finger at me and tell me what you should think. You need to get behind me. You need to stand behind me and follow after me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of man. There, His heart is hard to Jesus' message. His heart is hard to what Jesus is telling him, what Jesus is revealing to him in verse 31. And it's because of His perspective. It's because of His mindset. He doesn't have a spiritual perspective. He has a physical perspective. Number three, if you want to fix a hard heart, you have to learn to set your mind on the things of God. You have to view life. You have to view the world around you. You have to view the people in your life from a spiritual perspective as opposed to a physical perspective. It's like driving down the road. 
you take your car, you take your eyes off the road long enough, what's going to happen? The car's going to veer to one side or the other, and you're going to wreck. That's what I heard up there. That's probably what's going to happen. But what happens when you keep your eyes set on the road? When you keep your eyes set on where you're going, what you're supposed to be focused on, the car's going to stay straight. And hopefully you're going to get to where you're wanting to get to. And the same thing is true here. As Christians, we're trying to set our eyes on Jesus. We're trying to set our eyes on the things of God. We're attempting to view life from a spiritual perspective. Sometimes we get distracted because of our hard hearts. Like the Apostle Peter, we look off to the side and we veer to the left. We look off to the side and we veer to the right. If we want to fix a hard heart, we need to view this world and we need to view our lives through the eyes of God. Not setting our minds on the things of man, physical things, but setting our minds on the things of God. Spiritual things. It's all about mindset. It's all about perspective. It's all about how we see the world around us. Number three, fixing a hard heart means I'm going to set my mind on the things of God. Like we said, finding a hard heart within ourselves can sometimes be a very challenging thing to do. But maybe as you're walking through this text, you're thinking, that's where I am. Over the last little while, I've allowed my heart to become hard. Instead of being soft, my heart is like a stone. Here are three ways to fix that. Number one, plead for Jesus to open up your eyes. He's the only one who can do it. Number two, recognize who Jesus is. Live your life based on the recognition that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Set your mind on things of God instead of setting your mind on things of man. I think if we were to do those three things, even if our hearts aren't hard, imagine how much closer we'll be able to draw to our Father. Imagine how much we'll be able to grow spiritually if we were to focus on those three things this week. If we can help you to do that, if we can help you to focus your attention on those three things, or if we can help you to come back to Jesus in any way, we'd love to do that as together we stand and sing our song of invitation.